You're listening to the teaching podcast of The Crossing Church. We exist so that the real you can have a daily encounter with the real Jesus in word and deed. For more information about our church, visit crossingparagold.com. in our Bibles to Revelation chapter 2. Gage is going to read that for us and uh, then we'll dive into the Word. So thank you, Gage. Let's stand together, by the way, for the reading of God's Word. To the angel of the church in Smyrna write, these are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer, I tell you. The devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for ten days. Be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. Hmm. Thank you. Let's pray. Father, can that be true of us? Would you, Holy Spirit, make that true of us, that we would overcome and therefore not be hurt by the second death? I pray that in the midst of trial and suffering, persecution, that you'd be very near to us and we would know that you're with us as Megan prayed just a moment ago. I pray that your word would become alive in us and would do a transforming work in our hearts, reveal to us the things that need to be revealed. And graciously invite us back into deeper relationship with you through the teaching of your word. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you can be seated. This is our second week in a new series looking in the book of Revelation where we're looking at the seven letters to the seven churches in Asia, which is modern day Turkey. These were written from the island of Patmos, which is uh, in the sea just off the coast of Turkey. And John is the one writing here. This is the Apostle John. Uh, and he's pretty up there in age. He's been, it's, he's not like on a vacation island. He's on a prison island, okay? He's been exiled there. And he receives this vision from God and writes these letters from Jesus himself. Jesus appears to John and says, I have a word for the churches and I want you to write these things down. And so he writes them down, distributes them to the angels of the churches or the pastors of the churches who then take them to these seven churches. We started last week looking at the, uh, the church in Ephesus and this week we are 35 miles up the road at the church in Smyrna. Uh, we, what we're doing in this is we want to see what does it look like to be a successful church, to be a healthy church? What does success as a church look like? Is it the four B's? You know what the four B's are? Butts, a butts in the seat, uh, budgets, baptisms, buildings. Okay. Is, is that what we use to measure success? Well, the answer is really no. Not even really baptisms, what we use to measure success. Last week, what we saw is that a healthy church is one that has and maintains an enduring passion for Jesus. One that does not forget its first love. And this week, we're going to see that Jesus calls the church to remain faithful in spite of all the pressures of this world. And he calls the church to expect suffering. So with that exciting news... Uh, we'll move on. Back in January uh, this year, my wife and I, we took in, we started a new chapter in our life. We took in two new little kids into our home. We started a couple months before that the, the process of becoming like an open home for foster care. It's what our MC, like that's our mission is to support and help foster families. And so we were hanging around with a lot of foster families and we was, the Lord just like moved in our heart like this, we want to do this. We want to jump on board. So we thought, well, we'll foster a, a child. So that's how we started. Well, within a few months, we had gone through all the training and all that. We opened up our home. We're like, so we wound up welcoming two, two kids. Okay. So we have little Eli. He's three. 
and Emmy, who is five, and they are a joy. They are full of, full of joy, full of excitement, and lots of energy, <laughs> loads of energy, okay? They are really wound up. I don't know. But I don't know where it all comes from. It is incredible. Matter of fact, if you've ever seen Simone Bile, like the, the, like she's like, wow, the Olympian, you know what I'm talking about? Emmy is just like her. I mean, like looks just like her, built just like her. She's going to be a gymnast. She uses our living room often to practice her gymnastics, flipping off of stuff. Like she, she'll, you try to hold her. She literally goes straight to your shoulders. Uh, we went swimming for the first time. I don't think they've ever been swimming. We went swimming at the Sims house couple of weeks ago. And the most fearless person I have ever seen is this girl. She's five years old and like literally standing up on top of the slide and I'm freaking out. I'm scared to death, but it's been a joy. It's been great. It has been awesome. And it's been hard. It has created moments of real strain and pressure that we did not know existed and would exist, you know, So we're back to having a three-year-old and five-year-old in the house. That's new. That's a new chapter. Like we were past those years. We were to the point where like if we wanted to go on a uh, a date, you know, we could just be like, y'all, we'll see you later. You know, like we can leave our kids at home. We can't do that anymore. Uh, They require a lot more help, you know, even getting ready for bed or feeding themselves. It's just, this is hard, you know. And not only that, they come with all this energy we've talked about. And that is does not, contrary to what some people say, it doesn't keep you young. It makes you feel really old, okay? Some people are like, oh, that's going to keep you young. I'm like, you're a liar. You don't know what you're talking about, okay? That's not what it does. That's not what it does. So uh, lots of gray hairs, like literally popping up fast, loads of stress. And uh, <laughs> Jim Gaffigan once said, like, what's it like having a fifth child? He's like, imagine uh, that you're drowning in water and then someone throws you a baby. You know, it's like, that's what it's like. <laughs> so we were already there and now we're like, ah, all right. Uh, but not only that, they have, they have like a, attachment patterns that have already been developed that are kind of new for us to navigate. And it's been challenging. And the Lord has used these things to really test our faith. And I'm gonna give you two real quick examples. I'll try to make them quick. Two months back, I was getting ready to get my worship on, okay? I was in here. Getting ready for the second service. My wife hadn't made it up yet. She was still about to make her way here. The kids had already come with me and were, had gone to class. Okay, so both Emmy and Eli were back in class, still waiting on Allison to get here. And I get a tap on the shoulder. Like I said, ready to get my worship on. I get a tap from his teacher. He says, like, hey, Robert, I think Eli just threw up a little bit in the class. And I'm like, okay, well, I'll be right there. I wanted to say, can you not take care of it? You know, but I didn't. And I, because that would not be right. That'd be wrong. Don't do that to your teacher. So anyway, so I, I went back and I, I look at him. He's sitting all sad, you know, in this chair, real quiet. I'm like, hey, buddy, you know, like he's the cutest little thing ever. Anyway, so I'm like, hey, buddy, you okay? Just doesn't really say much. And come here to dad. Come here to see me, you know. He gets up on me and I'm like, whew, <laughs> something stinks. You know what I mean? Like it's, it smelled awful. I'm like, well, you're clearly not feeling good and whatever you've thrown up smells really bad. And so I'm going to put you down and go get your sister. And I put him down. I'm going to get a sister out of class. And I look down at my clothes and whatever it is that he's thrown up is now like all over my shirt and down my leg and a little bit on my arm. Okay. And I go down to get a sister and the whole way. I'm just like, wow, this is so offensive. This smell. And I get to the class. Miss uh, Nikki is in there and I'm like, Hey, I'm going to need Emmy. Uh, junior has maybe like thrown up in class. And she's like, I'm pretty sure that's poop is what she said. And I'm like, that's what I thought. And I look down and I'm just like, I'm going to go home. You know, so I, I go back and I grab him and I'm literally carrying him by uh, one arm and one leg, you know, like this. And I'm carrying him like this, putting him in my car on, on my seats. You know what I'm saying? Like, what do you do? Uh, and so I get him all the way to the house and um I was honestly, it was the, it was the, the help of the whole, I'm not lying, literally the help of the Holy Spirit. I'm just like, God, like, thank you for this opportunity to, to like care for this kid who's apparently sick, has eaten something and it's a mess. Give me strength. Help me out. I put him in the straight in the tub and like, I don't know what to do. I, I, I don't want to, I don't know what to do. And so I'm just like, I'm going to go for it. I'm just going to go for it. I got the water running and i I know you're about to eat, but it's no lie. Like from the hair all the way down, it looks like a brown version of if you had taken like Cool Whip and literally just smeared it all over his body. So that's like the consistency. Anyway, I'm, so I'm just like, 
I'm going to do it. So I just get my hand and I just start, I just clean it off. You know what I'm saying? I've got to keep the water coming, you know, just keep it going down the tub, you know, that whole thing. I'm do, I did it. And I got done and I literally am like, I'm so thankful to God that I stood, I stood the test. You know what I mean? I didn't cuss at him. I didn't shame him. I, I encouraged him. I was kind and I was honestly quite proud of myself uh, as a parent. And, uh, you may be sitting there thinking like, man, I so admire him. Look, they've taken in these kids in their home and, and they're, they're just so wonderful and gentle, but that's not always true. I'll give you a second example. A couple of weeks ago, I had this great idea. We had several errands to run and I told my wife, I'm like, Hey, Allison, you go this way and I'll take the three youngest with me. I, I got to pop into Walmart, grab a couple things. Okay. I'll take the three young ones, which is Ace. Okay. Our bio or youngest bio kid. And then, uh, these two who are three and five. So I've got an eight, three and five year old with me in Walmart piece of cake. Okay. So I'm like, let's go in there. And it was not a piece of cake. It was constant. Like, no, don't touch that. No, you can't do that. Stop running. Please, you know, quit, you know, jumping in front of that lady. Like, don't do that. You don't know that person. Don't climb on him. You know, that kind of stuff. Okay. It's like literally nonstop. And so we get to the register and what are they doing? They're grabbing everything off the shelf. I want this candy. I want that. I'm like, no, no. So when I say no, Emmy starts pouting and she like literally is going and hiding and stuff. And I'm just like, it's like mm, rising up here and uh, the flesh is just like trying so hard. It really wants to come out and I let him out here in just a little bit. Uh, so we get out to the parking lot. We got out to the park. I'm trying to make it funny because it really is, is going to be sad. Okay. You're about to, I'm probably about to cry because it's really sad. All right. So anyway, we get out to the parking lot. We're now like life and limb are at stake. Okay. The cars are moving around and I need to get these kids in the car. Okay. I'm like, kids, she's crying because she didn't get the candy she wanted. Ace is trying to get something out of the cart. This is my nine, uh, now nine year old. He's like trying to get this food out of the cart. I'm like, and so I tell him, Ace, put the food down, put it down. And I'm just loading whatever it is, kids and stuff into the car. I turn around. He's still holding it like he didn't even hear me. Okay. I know he heard me. You know what I'm saying? Ace, put it down. That's what I said. And I, I continue putting the stuff in. I look back a third time. I'm not lying. He's still messing with whatever it is. I know he's terrible, isn't he? All right. So I looked at him and I saw it. And, and every thing that I had that was holding me back just disappeared. And I, the, the flesh just like literally went, went crazy. And I, with everything that I had in me, yelled at my eight-year-old. And I said, I didn't care who saw me. I was about six spots back from the front of the building and it was busy and there's people everywhere. And I know half the people in this town know who I am, but I didn't care. I literally didn't care. And I look at my son and I yell at him, put it down. And he's like, you know, like this thing, he, he puts it down gets in the car and I'm literally like, I, I have two voices going on. They're literally going on at the same time. One is like, everyone just saw you and you're, you know, look what a failure you are. And I have this other voice of like, you know, um, he deserved it. I don't care. You know? So like I'm getting in the car and I'm, I'm already know that like, I'm not where I should be. I know that the flesh is in control. I can like, I just know what's going on. There's a battle, like literally a battle going on. But when I get in the car, I'm triggered again because I look at him and he has that same bag that I kept telling him to put down and he has it and he's trying to get into it now, which is honestly fine. It's not even a big deal. So I'm going to try to snatch the bag out of his hand and I reach over and like grab it like that. Well, when I do, he has his thumb up like this and I hit his thumb and I jam his thumb and like in a way that sincerely hurts him. Oh, he, he starts cry bawling in the car and it's not like a, he's literally hurt. It went on for like 30 minutes, uh, that he was, he was hurt. And I immediately am like melting in my seat. I'm calling my wife to tell her like, uh, what an unholy person I am. And, uh, and I'm just sitting there thinking like, what has happened? How, how I, I have hurt my kid who I love so much. And like, where did this come from? Like, I'm a calm person. I just, a week or two ago, got done like wiping all this stuff off my three-year-old. And now like I'm raging out like this. What is going on? We get to the house and I'm like, Ace, I need you to come over here. It took a while for me to get to this point because I'm in my head knowing like, I know I need to repent. I know I need to confess, like apologize and ask for his forgiveness. But I just like, I can't do it yet. I just can't do it. So finally we get to the house. It's about 30 minutes have passed. He's calmed down. I'm sitting down on the front porch. I call him over there to me and I'm like, Ace, there is never an excuse for me to act out of anger like that, you know? 
I told him, I said, like, I'm, I'm really sorry. And I said, uh, I need your forgiveness. And he said, it's okay, Dad. I appreciate that, but it's not okay, I said. Um, and I really need you to know that what I did is, is not okay. It's not appropriate or right. It's sinful. And I want, I want your forgiveness. I'm asking for your forgiveness. And he said, well, I forgive you, Dad. And I just thought in that moment, like, golly, God help me to be as quick to forgive as my son is. And uh, he forgave me. And I, I failed a test. There's a pressure that's been brought into my home that we've brought in that has, is constantly like weighing and like revealing things in me that I didn't know were there or didn't want to see. You know what I'm saying? And these, we all have these pressures, okay? Whether they're from bringing, you know, uh, adopting kids. Oh, which by the way, I just want to share some good news. I want to celebrate together. Uh, we were given a date, July the 20th, that we will officially adopt these two kids. They'll be uh, like forever members of our home. So we praise God for that. Yeah, thank you so very much. I'm very excited about that. Um, but of course the pressure is not going to go away. Uh, but we all have like, Things that bring like pressure or strain on our life. And they don't just come from the fact that we live in a fallen world and like we get disease and sickness and lose people we love. I mean, those things definitely create pressure and strain, uh, unforeseen stress added to our life. But there's also an, an ever growing pressure from the world or society or culture to conform and to compromise your faith in Christ. There's a constant pressure coming from your peers. It's coming from entertainment, like the movies you watch, the shows, the, the music you listen to, the, the influencers, the corporations. I mean, like, I love, I usually give a Disney reference, you know. I'll give a Disney re- reference right now. Disney is pushing hard for you to compromise your faith in Jesus. Social media companies, I mean, you name it, it, this pressure is coming from everywhere for us to just conform or compromise the gospel and our faith in Christ. And I can remember back in 2012, uh, Russell Moore had taken over at, at the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission. And I don't know if you know who he is or not, but he, he gave this speech when he took over the, as the president of that organization. And he says this about America, about Christianity in America. Because at the time, this is 10 years ago, I was just like, yeah, America, Christian nation, like we're the silent majority, go Christians, you know, that kind of thing. And here's what he said. He said, brothers and sisters, friends and neighbors, we can no longer pretend that we Christians are a moral majority in this country. So I was like, what? And then he says, the Bible belt is collapsing. The world of nominal cultural Christianity that took the American dream and added Jesus in order to say that you can have everything you've ever wanted and heaven too is soon to be gone and good riddance, he said. What he's trying to say and what he said, I think said rather well is that it's no longer cool to be Christian in America. This is no longer a place, like we live in a post Christian culture here in America. In other words, Christianity is no longer the primary dominating necessarily viewpoint that's driving culture in this country. The number of Americans who identify as Christians are down. They've been trending down for for a couple of decades. The number of Americans identifying as atheist or agnostic, it's shooting way up. Fastest growing segment of our culture. Church attendance is down. Not only that, but like church leaders are less trusted. You know, back in 1985, uh, Pew Research said that 67% of Americans saw clergy as having a high honesty and ethical standard. 67%, two out of three. But just last year, that number had dwindled down to 39%. So pastors, church leaders, no longer hold the like position of, of honor and influence that they once did. Christianity is not as revered as it once was in this country. And nowhere is this rate of change or decline, I would say, more noticeable than in our schools. We're seeing this rapid shift in schools, especially in what's believed by the culture to be moral and good. It's a complete redefinition of morality from the use of drugs to the, to our views on sex, to our views on marriage, to what it means to even be male and female. 
And the pressure that's coming from the world to conform is intense, especially among teens. Not only is the pressure from the world real, but it's also not new. This is not something new, which, by the way, brings us to the letter that we're reading today. The church in Smyrna knew all about the pressures of persecution and suffering. They knew the pressure uh, to conform to the way of the Roman Empire. Smyrna was this really rich, really wealthy city. It was also very deeply committed to idolatry, uh, even emperor worship. They, they had all these temples to these pagan gods like Zeus. They, they had this one uh, street called the Golden, uh, the Golden Street. And you can still see some of it today. It literally is still there today. And on either side of this street, they had all these temples to the, to the gods. Now, most of that type of pagan worship had kind of dissipated by the time John writes this, uh, or Jesus, I guess, writes it through John. But a couple of years before, in the year 23, uh, Smyrna had won this privilege. There was like a contest among cities in the Roman Empire to build the first temple to worship the emperor Tiberius Caesar. And so the, the temple to the emperor Caesar is in Smyrna. And then the next emperor, the, uh, the emperor Domitian, who, by the way, was the one ruling when John was exiled to Patmos. Okay, so when this letter is written, Domitian's the one in control. And he's the first one who actually demanded worship uh, from, from citizens. They, they had to call him Lord or God, recognize em, the emperor Domitian as God. And what had to happen is once a year, every Roman citizen would have to go to this temple to the Roman emperor and they'd have to take a pinch of incense and burn it and say the mantra, Caesar is Lord. Piece of cake. You know what I'm saying? It wasn't like a big imposition on the people. It didn't cost them a lot of money or anything like that. You just had to burn the incense and say Caesar is Lord. And then you'd get a certificate that proved you had done your religious duty for the year. And all the Christians had to do who lived in Smyrna, this is not not hard. All that Christians had to do is pinch the incense, burn it, and say, Caesar is Lord, but they wouldn't do it. It's precisely the thing that Christians would not do. They would give no man the name of Lord except for Jesus Christ himself. And that led to lots of persecution, lots of trouble for the Christians. Christians who wouldn't bow the knee would lose their businesses. They'd lose their ability to do trade, to buy things, it left most followers of Jesus very poor in the middle of a very rich city. It's why Jesus says, I know your afflictions and your poverty. Jesus says, I know your poverty. They were robbed of jobs, fired from jobs as a form of persecution for the gospel. Early Christians, this is from Hebrews 10, 34. We would say they joyfully accepted the plundering of their goods, knowing that they have an enduring possession for themselves in heaven. Not only was there pressure from economic persecution, but there was slander from the Jews in Smyrna. In verse 10, let's look at it together, what Jesus says. He says, I know about the slander of those who say that they're Jews, but they're not. They're a synagogue of Satan. What was happening is that these particular Jews that were in that community, in that city, did not like the movement of Jesus. They didn't like the way of Christ and they did what they could to stop or squash the, the way. Well, they didn't have the authority to actually punish people with like civil punishment. So they would appeal to the Roman government to do it. And in order to get the Roman government to, to punish Christians, they would slander Christians. They would speak words that were most of the time untrue about Christians. Like these people are seditionists. These people are like against Caesar. These people will not bow the knee to Caesar and say that he's Lord. They would claim that they were atheists. The Jews and other Romans there were saying the Christians were atheists. Did you know that that's what we used to be accused of, of being atheists? Why? Well, because Christians wouldn't bow and worship these Roman gods. Okay. They also wouldn't bow the knee and say that Caesar is Lord. And so they were accused of being atheists. And that brought on lots of, lots of repercussions, lots of tribulation for Christians. But there's two things about the suffering of the church in Smyrna that we can see here. The first one is that they never, this church in Smyrna never receives a rebuke from Jesus. When we read these seven letters, in at least five of them, we see 
uh, well, in five of them, we see, uh, like, hey, here's something I see in you that Jesus would say. A lot of them had something good. Like last week, we heard this, uh, that the church in Ephesus, I see these good things about you, but I have this against you, Jesus would say. And he would rebuke the church in some way. But this church right here has no rebuke from Jesus. They've been faithful. And by the way, this most likely contributed to the fact that they were so persecuted. Somehow it seems that the more faithful we are to Jesus, the more trouble seems to come our way. And my wife and I, we had this conversation before. It just seems like the harder we try, sometimes the harder it is, you know? And it's always easier somehow to conform and just compromise a little. And when we do that, we can enjoy the favor of the world. I mean, the world will like us. Paul wrote to Timothy, though, that everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. The second thing we see about them, though, this is the only one of the seven churches written, here in, written to it here in Revelation that's still in existence today. Why exactly? I don't know, but despite going through centuries of Roman and Muslim persecution, they're still standing. Maybe that says something about the work of persecution in our life or the work of suffering in our life. So I want to see four different things that suffering and persecution or pressure and trials, four things, four effects that they have on our life, four purposes that they serve. Okay, you may want to jot these down. So get your lipstick and mascara out. Here we go. Number one, suffering reveals what's truly on the inside. It has this like incredible way of revealing what's going on inside of us. For example, when I'm standing in the Walmart parking lot and I'm feeling all the pressure that having two new little ones in my life has added to me and I'm feeling all this pressure and then suddenly something inside me just comes raging out. Where did that come from? Well, what I want to do is I want to blame my circumstances for my sin. Yeah, I want to say that the reason I sinned just now is because I was under so much stress, which by the way is why you never apologize by saying like, I'm really sorry, but you made me whatever, so mad, or but you were being so bad or whatever it is. It's not their fault. But, but here's the thing, our, our circumstances are not the cause of our sin. The pressure is not the cause of our sin, but it's the magnifier of what was already there. It's like when we wring out a towel, okay? So if I had a towel here and a little bowl and that towel was wet and I picked it up, you may not see water dripping out of it, but if I were to wring that towel out, you'd see this water start pouring out. And whatever's in the towel starts coming out of the towel when the pressure, when, the, when it gets pinched, you know what I'm saying? When the pressure's on. The same thing's true in our life. What's really on the inside is what comes out. I used to use an illustration, like if I were to take this right here, I use this with students a lot. If I take this right here and boom, slosh that like that. Wow, that's pretty neat. Uh, what just came out of that? Oh, yes, water. Why didn't milk come out of there? There's no milk in it. That's right. That's how we have to do teenagers. You know what I'm saying? Like, come on. Uh, yeah, because there's no milk in it. What, what came out was what was already in it. Okay. And that's the same thing's true in our life. Like what comes out uh, is what was already in there when we get shaken up. You know what I'm saying? So that's what, that's what pressure does too, is it reveals what's truly on the inside. And that can be a gift from God. It is a gift from God. It's a mercy, a grace that God extends to us to help us see things that are on the inside. Because when we see the things that we don't want to see, or we didn't know were there, what Jesus does, he doesn't just shame us for it. And like, look what a terrible person you are. You thought you were really great, but you're a loser. He doesn't do that. He instead invites us then into more life. He says like, Hey, look, I see this about you. You didn't even see it. Maybe I see this about you. Now it's time to let that go. And I want to invite you into deeper intimacy with me. That's what Jesus does. So it reveals what's truly on the inside. Secondly, it takes what's mundane and makes it glorious like a diamond. Now, if I were to have like charcoal up here or some, you know, pile of carbon, you wouldn't think that was very neat. Okay. You'd be like, that's lame. Okay. <laughs> we're, we're all kind of like a bunch of carbon, but the, what makes carbon turn into diamonds, which by the way, that's how diamonds are formed. They're formed by the element carbon undergoing immense pressure and, and high temperatures. 
So that's like the, the physics lesson there. Well, there's an application to us. The same thing's true of us. It's, it's pressure and, and suffering that takes something that is otherwise just mundane and normal and common and turns it into something beautiful and rare and valuable and glorious. John Piper said that one of the primary purposes of being shaken by suffering is to make our faith more unshakable. So God is doing that in you. He's making you into something beautiful, something valuable through suffering. Number three, it accelerates our discipleship, our formation into the image of Jesus. Maybe you remember us talking about the intentional spiritual formation paradigm here in our church. The whole idea is that we're all being formed into something. Every day when you get up, you know, you can't help it. You're being formed in the image of something whether unintentionally or intentionally. And as followers of Jesus, we want to be intentional about what we're being formed into because what do we want to be formed into? Well, into the image of Jesus. We want to be more like Jesus. But what happens is, is like, uh, we find out that takes a long time. <laughs> you know, it's not an easy process. It's not like straight up and to the right. It's not how it works. You know, it's like all kinds of ups and downs. But through teaching, this is what uh, the, the, the paradigm teaches, that through teaching, through the spiritual disciplines, through uh, being in a, a, a community of, of believers and through the power of the Holy Spirit over time, we are made more into the image of Jesus. But maybe you, like me, sometimes get frustrated at the lack of growth you see in your life. Maybe sometimes, like me, you might feel like, what is taking so long? Why am I still struggling in this particular area of my life? Why am I still blowing up at my kids? I am 40, nearly two years old. You know, what, what is going on with me? I've been following Jesus since I was 13. Well, there is, the good news is, there is a fast track to discipleship. There is a fast track to looking more like Jesus. And it's suffering. So if you want to be more like Jesus and you want to get there quickly, expect suffering. Lastly, number four, suffering unites us to Christ. Jesus said something very interesting to these suffering Christians in Smyrna. He says this. He says, I know your afflictions. He says, I know the slander that you're experiencing. I know. There's something encouraging about the fact that Jesus is aware of the suffering and trials that you're facing. Is there not? It's some, there's something comforting and reassuring to know that Jesus isn't just like turning a blind eye to you, but he sees you. And when you experience trials and pressure, he's aware of what's going on. But I don't think Jesus is just saying that I'm aware of what you're going through. Like, hey, I, I see what's going on there. I see it. Jesus doesn't just know it that way, but he knows it personally. Jesus has experienced suffering. And in that way, Jesus says, I know your afflictions. I know. I've been there. I know the slander that you're experiencing at the hand of the Jews. I've been there. John chapter 15, Jesus said, verse 18 and 19, he says, If the world hates you, keep in mind it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as one of its own. As it is, though, you don't belong to the world, but I've chosen you out of the world, and that's why the world hates you. Jesus knows suffering. He personally knows sorrow. He knows loneliness. He knows betrayal. He knows what it is to be slandered. He knows what it is to be falsely accused. He knows what it is to be abandoned. He knows what it is to lose someone close. He even knows what it is to die. He's been there before you. And when you suffer, it unites you with Jesus. It takes you into deeper relationship to Jesus. You get to know Jesus better when you share his pain. It's interesting to consider the name that's given or the title or the, the description that's given of, given of Jesus at the beginning of this letter to the church in Smyrna. 
Because at the beginning of each of the seven letters, there's a different description or name that's given for Jesus. Jesus is the one speaking, revealing this information to John, who's writing this stuff down. And he reveals something about himself to each of these seven churches. And it's not the same in any of the the seven. They're all a little bit different. And the church in Smyrna gets an interesting, I don't think it's by accident. I don't think he's just like, eh, give them this one and this one and this one. You know, no, I think he has something intentional to say. And Jesus says, I am the first and the last who died and came to life again. And now Jesus is saying, look, I've already been there. I died and I came to life again. And now you be faithful, even to the point of death. Because the worst thing that's going to happen to you is death. And that can't hold you any more than it can hold Jesus. And so suffering, persecution, pressure, and trials, they serve a purpose in the life of a disciple of Jesus. They serve you, and they're for your good. Of course, none of us would ever say, like, bring it on. Like, I want more suffering. But we do when it comes we rejoice because in it, like our God is doing so many things for us and through us. But how do we remain faithful in the middle of those trials? Because for some people, let's be honest, for some people you experience some suffering, you experience a setback, a trial, and it can be devastating to the faith of some. There are many who fall away who because of, because of trials, persecution, suffering, So how do we remain faithful? Look at verse 10, what Jesus says to the church. He says, don't be afraid what you're about to suffer. Well, he's like, what do you mean about to suffer? We're already suffering. No, he says, don't be afraid of what you're about to suffer. In other words, there's more coming. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you. And you will suffer persecution 10 days. Be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you your victor's crown. So Jesus, one thing I noticed right there, or one thing I don't notice, I guess you'd say, in that promise from Jesus is that Jesus doesn't promise them a way out of their suffering. He doesn't say, like, okay, the devil is going to put some of you in prison, so you need to pray that the Spirit would bind Satan. He doesn't say that like hang in there for a little bit and your victory's coming in the morning. Or hey, claim claim uh, all that God has for you in me because just for a little bit this is going to last, but I promise you it's going to be good on the other side. He doesn't say that. He says, be faithful. Some of you are going to be put to death. There's not going to be an end of this for you except death. Death is going to be your way out. Vance Havner wrote this. He says, the saints at Smyrna had not been given a pep talk on how to win friends and influence people. They had no testimony on uh, how faith made me the mayor of Smyrna. They were not promised deliverance from tribulation, poverty, and reviling. In fact, they were told that the worst was yet to come. And John Stott, he says that, we as Christians, we're not, we're not to seek to pers- or, or preserve our holiness, excuse me. We're not to seek to preserve our holiness by escaping from the world. Like I'm going to stay holy by getting away from the world. Nor are we to sacrifice our holiness by conforming to the world. So I, Jesus doesn't call me to like, okay, I don't want to be like the world. So I'm going to have nothing to do with the world. And he also doesn't say like, Hey, it's too hard to just become like the world. I can remember reading a book from Rick Warren years and years ago. And uh, he says, he says this at the beginning, and I'm going to use his exact quote because I don't really eat this stuff. Okay, I'm going to let him say that. He says this. Look at this on the screen. When I go out to dinner and order sea bass. Okay, I've never, whenever I hear sea bass, I think of a movie. But anyway, uh, whenever I go out to dinner, I order sea bass. The first thing I have to do before I can eat it is I have to put salt on it. That fish has lived its entire life in salt water. And yet I have to put salt on it. What is going on? The fish is insulated. And if God can take a fish and keep it in salt water its entire life 
and not have the salt permeate the fish, then certainly God can take any believer, put us in the world, and keep us from being corrupted by the wrong values. Well, okay, that sounds great. I'm kind of like, yes. I remember reading that. It was me like, absolutely. In the world, not of the world. That's me. I'm going to be, yeah, I'm going to be in the world and I'm not going to be corrupted by the world. And the, but the question is the how? How? Well, honestly, it's not going to happen without the power of the Holy Spirit. It's just not going to happen. In fact, one of the evidences given in the scriptures that you're truly a disciple of Jesus is that you will endure to the end. And how does that happen? Well, the one who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion. In other words, the Holy Spirit who comes into your life when you put your faith and trust in Jesus is the same Holy Spirit who keeps you in Christ all the way to death. But how does he do it? Okay, I want to give us two practical things. Two things that we can do that the Holy Spirit helps us do to help us remain faithful. Number one, we think back to the faithfulness of Jesus. We can, the Holy Spirit reminds us of how Jesus has been faithful to us. One example of this was the pastor in the first century of this church in Smyrna. There was a pastor right after John was exiled to Patmos. There was a pastor who came along named Polycarp. Polycarp knew John. And Polycarp lived, he was young when John was old, but Polycarp would live to be 86 years old. And he was the pastor of the church there in Smyrna for, a couple, for several years. Uh, a great deal of persecution broke out while Polycarp was pastor there. Christians were being arrested, persecuted, even killed. They were even being killed for sport. Christians were being brought into an arena in front of cheering crowds. And they were releasing lions to kill Christians for the entertainment of the people. That's what was happening. Pastors like imagine uh, pastoring a church like that, like in that environment. And Paul, here's the pastor, Polycarp. He's been arrested. He gets drugged into the city. The guys arresting him, historians tell us, were even encouraging him like, hey, listen, we don't want to do this. Like he's old, you know what I'm saying? Like even the vilest person feels some kind of guilt for arresting this 86-year-old man and dragging him in to be fed to lions, okay? But Polycarp, by the way, has already had this vision that he's going to be burned at the stake. He's already told his congregation, like, this is what's going to happen to me. The Lord has this for me. To be burned at the stake. Well, anyway, these people are dragging him into the city, saying, like, you don't have to do this. Just burn the incense and say, Caesar's Lord. Like, look, just say it. You don't even have to mean it. And we'll let you go. And Polycarp answers, no. No, I won't do that. So they're angry. They bring him in there. The people are yelling. They're chanting, like, kill the atheists. They're yelling. Polycarp being the leader of the atheists, those who won't bow their knee to Caesar. He watches before he's killed. He watches two other men, both of whom had said they would never bow the knee to Caesar. They were, they're going to be faithful to Jesus. The first one of the two he sees, uh, by the way, there were at least 11 others who were, who were killed before he was killed. But he saw two of them. The first of the two, uh, like when he sees the lions coming, recants. He, he, he can't do it. He folds under the pressure. And renounces Christ and is let go. The second of the two remains faithful to the end. And he watches lions devour a, a, a person in his own congregation. And then he's brought forward. The lions have already eaten. The lions are put away. They're full. Okay. They have another way, that, another example they're going to make of the leader of this church. They're going to burn him at the stake in front of everybody. So they set up the wood, they set up a pole, and they go to fasten him to the stake and tie him there. Let, uh, uh, history tells us that, that he tells the, uh, his captors, they're like, look, you don't have to use ropes. Like, I'm not going anywhere. And so he, uh, he, he says he considers it a joy to be counted among the martyrs. And so he stands there as they light, uh, they're about to light the flames. They give him one more chance to, uh, to renounce Jesus and to say Caesar is Lord. And Polycarp says, I can't do that because for 86 years, Jesus has been faithful to me. How could I now revile my king? How did Polycarp remain faithful to the end in the midst of intense suffering, intense persecution to the point of death? He did so by remembering the faithfulness of Jesus. Jesus is not some distant deity or some distant uh, religious leader who doesn't care about or hasn't been through what you've been through. 
He's walked the road you're traveling. He's experienced suffering to the point of death, and he was faithful to the end. And by joining him in suffering, remembering his suffering, we can be faithful. Secondly, we don't just think back to the faithfulness of Jesus, but we can think forward, check this out, to the victor's crown. Jesus said, let's let's look at it together. This is at the end of, of the little letter here. I think it's the shortest of the letters, really short. He says, verse 10, I tell you, the devil's going to put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Not sure what that exactly is talking about. Uh, I don't know if that means it's going to happen for 10 days or if that's going to be like some, some uh, scholars say that, that this is talking about a succession of 10 Roman emperors. Some say that, well, that means for 10 days there's going to be this great like arrest period where everyone's going to be arrested and thrown in prison for the rest of their life or whatever. I don't know exactly what it means. I don't have an opinion on it, but I do know this. It's not forever. There's going to be a period of time that you're going to be uh, um, arrested. You're going to be put in, in prison. You're going to suffer some of you to the point of death, he says. But be faithful to the point of death. And if you are, I will give you the victor's crown. I'll give you, mine says, the crown of life. Did you know that God knows and cares about the suffering in your life? And did you know that the suffering in your life, the pressures in your life, the trials of your life, the persecution you may experience is not for nothing. It will not go unnoticed. He sees it. Not only has he been there, but he knows everything that you're going through. And it will not go unrewarded. Your faithfulness will not go unrewarded. The reward's going to be glorious. You will be in the presence of Christ Jesus himself for eternity. You're going to be in the presence of God without all the sin baggage you're carrying around now. You're going to be in the unfiltered presence of God for all eternity. And that's what's going to make heaven glorious. And I'll tell you this now. If you're sitting here right now and you're like, well, that doesn't sound glorious to me. I'm going to tell you this. If you don't want God now... You don't want the heaven that's talked about in the Bible. Because heaven is reserved for people who want God. And if you want God, I promise you this, you're going to get him. And it's going to be so amazing. Paul puts it this way in Romans chapter 8, verse 18. He famously says, I consider that these present sufferings are not even worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. It's not even worth comparing the suffering I experience in this life. Now, hey, look. For us here in modern America, I don't know how much like we're actually suffering. I mean, like there, there's definitely, we experience like suffering of disease and sickness and things like that for sure. We definitely experience suffering of like pressure and trials and things like that for sure. Persecution, not so much. Think about this. These people in Smyrna who had nothing, they were out of money. They didn't have jobs. They couldn't buy food. And yet Jesus says, you are rich. How much better would it be to be counted by Jesus as spiritually rich and materially poor rather than being like the church in Laodicea that we're going to read about in a couple of weeks, materially wealthy, but spiritually bankrupt. Jesus says far better for you to be spiritually rich and materially poor. Not even worth comparing. So what's the invitation? What's the encouragement for us today? The encouragement for us today is to stay faithful to Jesus and know that it's worth it. There is a, there's a reward coming for the faithful. There's a reward coming for you and know that in this life right now, when we experience trials and sufferings of many kind, like we can rejoice because that's uniting us to Christ. We're identifying with Jesus. And that's why, but it's, it's, this is hard. I ain't lying. This is hard. You know, you know, this is hard. If you've tried to follow Jesus, you know, it's hard. And it's hard to stay faithful in the midst of pressure to conform. It's just hard, which is why every week we need this. We need to come back. We need to be around. We need to be living in community, not just on Sunday, 
Throughout the week, we need to be in community with one another. We, we need our DNA. We need our MC. We need these Sunday gatherings. And we need this communion. It's why every week we come and we partake of communion together. Because when we do so, we're being reminded that like, yes, I need to be refilled all the time. You know, like, yes, I felt at one point in time, maybe last week, I felt the presence of God, the, the filling of the spirit and felt his power, but it didn't take long. And, and I've leaked, you know what I'm saying? Like I've lost a lot of that. I need a refilling. And so we come here and we partake of communion, not in some kind of magical thing that it does, but what it does is it just reminds, reorients our heart around the fact that Christ is in us. We are in him. And so we're going to take the, and by the way, if, if you're in the band, you want to go ahead and come get ready. Those who are going to be serving the elements, if you want to come up here, we do this every week. And if you're new to us, just explain. Like we're going to come down, they'll pinch off a piece of, of bread, and they're going to hand it to you. And they'll remind you that this, is the, this represents the body of Jesus that was broken for you. And then you'll take that, that bread and you dip it in the juice, and you'll be reminded that this represents the blood of Jesus, which was shed so that your sins could be forgiven, so you could be reunited with God. And then you don't just take it and look at it and be like, wow, that's neat. No, you ingest it, you eat it. And this reminds us that, that like, we don't just need to like, uh, think about Jesus as like, wow, th- that's a great idea. No, we, we need him in us. You know what I'm saying? Like we, we need, to ingest him. We need him living in and through us. We need the power of the spirit in our life. And so let's, let's pray together. If by the way, uh, before we pray, if, if you're not yet a follower of Jesus, uh, there's an invitation for you as well. And it's not to come and like have communion. If you're not following Jesus, we want you to know that you are very welcome here. We are thrilled you're here. We hope you feel the love and presence of God here. But don't think that like taking communion is going to somehow gain you favor with God or get you some kind of special place. It's not. Um, th- this is one of the few things that's reserved for those who are disciples of Jesus. But what we would invite you to do, there is an invitation for you. If you're not yet following Jesus, we would invite you, instead of partaking of communion, to take Christ. Maybe consider giving your life to Jesus today. And if you'd like to talk more about that or see what that might look like for you, then I would encourage you to grab another disciple of Jesus, one of our pastors, Jared's, I think is back there, Adam, me, anybody, uh, Chris, anybody, uh, or, or someone that you just know and trust who's following Jesus. Let's talk about that and see what it could look like for you. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you again for your word. The words that you spoke, Jesus, to this church, the suffering church in Smyrna are just as true and applicable to us today that you desire for us to be faithful and not to conform and not to to fold under the pressure but but we just want to confess that it's hard that our flesh is weak and that's why we need you holy spirit would you empower us fill us afresh with your presence today i pray you do that in jesus name amen